นโมทัสสะภะคะวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามัสสี This being the first Sunday of the month, it's the time we generally take a look at the teachings from Ajahn Chah that. Presented on our Forest Sangha calendar page for this month. This month is a comment that says the Buddha taught Dharma and discipline complete and comprehensive. Nothing needs to be changed. There is nothing to be added and nothing to take away. This is where we can stop. I imagine probably many of us, if not all of us, have uh, had the experience of just wishing that we could stop. Certainly, I, uh, I hear people uh, come to the monastery and and they talk about their meditation when they they sit and the mind just won't stop and goes on and on and on. There's a a momentum that I just like to be able to. Unplug and drop it all and stop. And something that, yeah, as I say, I imagine is not uh, we're not unfamiliar with. And in other words, we're caught up in the momentum. And Ajahn Chah obviously was familiar with this, and and the Buddha was talking about this. And often the teachings that he gave, he referred to. The possibility of stopping. There's the Dhammapada verse, the verse 85, which says, "Few are those who reach the beyond. Most pace endlessly back and forth, not risking the journey." And this pacing back and forth, too afraid to risk the journey, is something that the Buddha had experienced for himself, and but then actually took the journey and realized what he called the beyond, or also stopping. And here Ajahn Chah is talking about this experience, this possibility of stopping and not endlessly pacing backwards and forwards. And the context of this uh, this quote, where he was talking about the. Uh, Predicament where we so easily remain caught up in the superficiality of life. This is the pacing back and forth, the being fooled by the way things appear to be. And uh, he didn't want us to spend our life being fooled by apparent reality. He discovered actuality. And talked about actuality. That's what we call the Dhamma. The Dhamma is actuality. There is apparent reality. There is the way things appear to be. But what he held up as the 
the place of freedom, the place of security, the place of true identity is actuality. And, and we're fortunate that even in this day and age we still have access to these teachings and examples of teachers who have followed this path and realized actuality uh, within apparent reality. So all of us fall prey to this, and uh, I would suggest it's very helpful to have this concept in our minds that there is apparent reality, no doubt about it. I was talking, I think, yesterday to a group of people at the meal where when you go into the kitchen, the apparent reality is all this food should be eaten. <laughs> it all looks good. That's the way it appears. There's no doubt about it. It actually does feel that way. But if we fall for the way it appears to be, we suffer. And herein lies what the Buddha wanted us to contemplate. That this suffering has got a direct cause. The direct cause is we don't see the actuality. We don't see the truth. We only see the way things appear to be. And so we pace endlessly back and forth, not daring to take the journey. And so the same applies, of course, also in the, uh, not just uh, the, the pleasant things of, uh, of food, but uh, the unpleasant things, like so, you know, despair or sadness and grief and anxiety. And anxiety, the apparent reality of anxiety is something terrible is going to happen. If you're caught up in anxiety, that's really what it feels like. But to have this concept of, yeah, this is the way... It absolutely does appear that way. It's like salt tastes salty. Yeah. It really... Anxiety really does feel like something terrible is going to happen. But that's not ultimate. That's not all there is to reality. That is because we're caught up in... You know, we're caught up in the way things appear to be. We don't know the essence. We just know uh, the surface... Uh, and Shah was talking about, in the context of this quote, he was talking about how, unfortunately, because people don't even suspect often that there is actuality, that when they're suffering, they just cover it up. And he talked about, for instance, you know, you've got some, some skin infection, a deep uh, toxic infection, and instead of really dealing with the infection, you just put skin cream on. So the skin heals over, but it hasn't dealt with the inner infection. Or when people have got causes in their life for suffering, and instead of dealing with the real causes of suffering, they uh, just take alcohol, basically take more poison, and cover up the natural symptoms, the appropriate symptoms of the suffering. Actually, the suffering is a sign of something we need to be looking at so that we can turn our attention around and look and find the cause. See, what is that that's obscuring reality? A few days ago, I, a friend of mine sent me a photograph of himself uh, lying in a hospital bed. And uh, he had um, seriously injured himself and was uh, his leg was, was in a plaster cast and, and he had been uh, working out at the karate club and and snapped uh, something that he shouldn't have snapped. And, and that was, um, yeah, there were consequences to that. And, but what he wrote about was that he'd been reflecting on the Buddhist teachings on what's called the, 
the discourse of the dart, or sometimes the, the arrow sutta, where the Buddha articulates the, the difference he says, between an untrained, untamed, unruly heart and a trained and tamed heart that understands Dhamma. For those beings, those worldly beings that are untamed, untrained, their hearts are unruly, he said, yes, you can get stuck by an arrow and yes, there is pain. But for such a person, it's like there's a second arrow or a second dart, which is the mental suffering. It's not just the pain, but then there's something extra we add to it. There's the second arrow and so my friend was pointing out how or talking about how he was seriously contemplating this, this discourse, this sutta and, and trying to avoid the second arrow as the, the Buddha pointed out for one who is tamed and trained and enjoying the benefits of realising Dhamma there's only the first arrow don't make the mistake of thinking enlightened beings don't have pain they do have pain but they don't have suffering because they don't add anything to it they know there's the apparent reality. Yep, that hurts. End of story. Because they also know there's actuality. That's what else you expect. You've got a body, it gets wounded, it gets injured, there is pain. But there's no resistance to that. There's no clinging to that, and so there's no suffering. So this possibility that uh, the Buddha held up and the great teachers have pointed towards to stop the following of the unruly, untamed impulses of the untrained heart. Now, this is what uh, in Buddhism is referred to worldliness. Worldliness doesn't mean to say that you, you live in a nice house decked out with you know, nice carpets and Ikea furniture and, and go to uh, concerts. That's not worldliness. So worldliness is where we believe in the activity of the heart, the activity of the mind. The movements, when we don't see them for what they are in the context of reality, if we don't see them truly for what they are, we get caught up in them and then we're impelled to follow them and we get caught up in the exuberance of the heart and therein lies our suffering, which we're all sadly familiar with. And so the Buddha wanted us to consider this as not an obligation, there's something we can do about it. Many of us, uh, I'm sure, are familiar with the, the story and the scriptures of uh, this uh, rather ugly, nasty fellow called Angulimala. And the Angulimala is um, uh, finger necklace. This guy, he was, a, he was a serious criminal. He had this necklace made out of fingers that he chopped off all his victims, and he, uh, he was aiming for a thousand fingers. He was kind of a thousand finger necklace, and, and he had done, uh, managed to get 999 uh, fingers, and um, he was going for the last one, and at that period the Buddha just happened to be walking by. Well, in fact, the Buddha went there intentionally. He, he came across this village and found out that everybody was very afraid of, of this uh, monstrous fellow, and and didn't know how to deal with him, even though apparently the king's soldiers and protectors wouldn't go near him. And So the Buddha wasn't intimidated, the Buddha wasn't afraid, the Buddha didn't feel threatened, he would go and check this guy out. So he walked past the, the, uh, the cave or the dwelling, wherever Angulimala was dwelling, and, and of course uh, 
Uncle Mala saw this this fellow walking by and was uh, probably a bit offended. How dare he come near me? Everybody's supposed to be afraid of me, so this will be my my thousandth finger. So he set out to take out the Buddha to get his finger. And the Buddha apparently exercised his psychic powers and made it look like, even though he was just walking along, relaxed, cool as a cucumber, no problem, Angulimala, who was a great athlete, was running at full speed to try and catch up with the Buddha. And he couldn't figure this out. You know, how come he's running at full speed and the Buddha's just, just walking along gracefully, elegantly, and no effort? And, and so Angulimala screamed out, Stop! to the Buddha. Stop! And the, and the Buddha turned around and said, I have stopped. Now it's your turn. And Uncle Imara said, what do you mean I've st- you've stopped? You're not stopped. You know, and the Buddha said, yeah, I have stopped. I've stopped following the impulse to harm living beings. And I'm sure there are many factors involved, but the, uh, the end of the story is that Uncle Imara saw the error of his ways and accepted the Buddha's invitation to go forth and to join the monk life and became a fully enlightened disciple of the Buddha realized how to truly stop. Despite all the unwholesome actions he had performed, whatever he had done in the past, that didn't get in the way of his understanding Dhamma. And once he understood Dhamma, once he realized the realm, the dimension, the territory that is inherently still, that, that, that place the Buddha called the unshakable heart, in the Mahamangala Sutta, many of you will know the discourse on on great blessings, jittang yasang nakampati. That heart, that jitta is nakampati, is unshakable. You know, the jitta that is realized, the heart that has realized the truth of the way things are, that knows dhamma, that knows actuality behind apparent reality, that jitta, that consciousness, that heart, can't be disturbed. It's not a matter of controlling it and keeping it still keeping it peaceful. It's inherently, it's realized its inherent nature of stillness. So the Buddha wasn't intimidated by Angulimala because the Buddha wasn't finding his identity, wasn't finding his security by clinging to anything. We, on the other hand, still clinging. Thoughts, feelings, sensations, perceptions, memories, the body... Clinging to the body-mind is for us the habit of and where we find our identity, our sense of meanness, our sense of security. For realized beings, for those that are trained, those that have tamed their unruly nature, they have realized the beyond, which the Buddha was pointing to, which is inherently still, inherently secure. And from that perspective, cannot be intimidated by anything. Any impulse. So the invitation, if we hear this teaching and we intuit the possibility of stopping, not just as a willful controlling of our thoughts and our feelings and and keeping a cap on everything, we can do that for a while, but if we hear the teachings and intuit the possibility of seeing beyond the habit of clinging to all activity of heart and mind. If we, if we sense that possibility, then we can be inspired to practice the way of letting go. 
the training. And we don't know, we don't know, we have no idea how long it's going to take before there is the arising of the insight that that shift in perspective which reveals another dimension, another reality, the beyond, as the Buddha called it. We don't know. We've got no idea how, that, how long that's going to take. So the training requires a lot of skill. One of those skills, of course, is, is the way we engage confidence or faith, trust. We hear these teachings, whether it's from teachings like Ajahn Chah or we read the scriptures of the Buddha's teachings and, and or some life experience that occurs and faith arises, trust arises, confidence arises, that there is this possibility. Well, the encouragement then is to really make that faith, that trust, that confidence conscious because it's precious. Because most of the time, most of us, don't know. As I said, don't know how long it's going to be before we're going to be able to let go of these habits of compulsively following our unruly nature, getting caught up in resentment, lack of forgiveness, uh, cravings and worries and anxieties and fears. Although we have the faith, most of us don't know how long it's going to take before letting go happens. We can't do letting go read the teachings and we, we maybe sit you know, on some retreats for a while or sit in meditation or, or with some spontaneous happening and stop stoking the fires and, the, and the, 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 the smoke dissipates and the light of reality maybe shines through for a moment. And, oh, that's, that's what this is all about. Right. But then the force of habit means you start stoking the fire again and then there's the smoke again and, and then the, the light is not there anymore and you're shrouded in darkness again. But faith can support us through that. You know, trust, confidence, and that's why it's precious because apparent reality is, you know, sometimes apparent reality might even be that it's hopeless. You know, the passions are flared up and you're full of anger and rage and the way it appears to be is you you've really got to go out and hurt somebody or indignation some political kind of story that is being promoted and you get enraged with indignation and send off a nasty tweet to somebody or or write a, a horrible blog article or engage in social media in the way that can be done instantly with great effect and cause a lot of pain, cause a lot of offence, cause a lot of hurt. Where's that come from? That's come from not seeing actuality and being lost in apparent reality. The apparent reality of anger is, yeah, it's justified. When you hurt somebody, it's going to be better. Everything's going to be better if I go out and hurt somebody. Just send this nasty message out across the world and... And then I'll feel better. Well, how many times have we done that? And it doesn't work. Fooled again. So we train. And how to keep the training constant. That's the thing. How to keep the training constant. Not just train when we're feeling inspired for a while, but when inspiration passes and we don't feel inspired anymore and conditions are not conducive anymore, what sustains us? 
trust, faith, confidence. And it's precious. It protects us. This is what protects us. Our precepts protect us because they stop us from, from doing anything too dangerous, too harmful. But also this faith protects us. It's easy to, to uh, dismiss the value of faith because you can't see it in a way that like you can see very energy. You know, energy, it's, it's visual, visible, it's, man, it's measurable. Uh, it, it's, you can see whether you, you, somebody's energetic or you're energetic. But faith mm, is a force for transformation. And we have that expression in our language, faith moves mountains. Yeah. Faith can be tremendously supportive. And just because it doesn't look dramatic, and we're not talking about belief here, we're not talking about a naive belief, in something that again gives us a synthetic sense of security. We're talking about a quality of trust in that dimension, which is beyond the way things appear to be. So training in this, making the faith conscious, gives us, affords us a sense of protection. So that when the hordes of Mara attack us and and we normally feel threatened, there's something prior to that that sustains us, that supports us. And so this is the... Um, if we, we say, I go for refuge to the Buddha, you know, we're going for refuge to this possibility, the possibility of stopping, the possibility of the beyond. We're not just going for refuge to... This man who lived in the Ganges Valley 2,500 and something years ago who was very wise and said a lot of good things, that's the form. That's still the apparent reality. That's the outside. The inside, the essence, is that dimension of reality that the Buddha referred to as the unborn, unmade, uncreated, undying, that is inherently stable. So having faith in that, having confidence in that, trusting in that possibility, taking on the training, takes faith. Sometimes you can get very confused. What are we supposed to do in practice? If I do anything, it somehow seems like it's making things worse. It's just this ego me trying to fix myself, this ego me trying to get somewhere, this deluded ego me trying to get enlightened. get a bit of a perspective on that, you say, well, that's not right, that, that's not it either. And then not doing anything, well, doing doesn't seem to be it, not doing, well, if I don't do anything, that's not it either. If you already have some degree of insight, then you can have an appreciation, perhaps, of an effort that is neither doing nor not doing. Now, if we don't have that appreciation, then we just keep doing what we're doing, but we question now the, the impulse to question or doubt the way things appear to be is a great blessing. Uh, often we can think that faith is the great blessing. Trust, confidence, feeling sure. Well, there's a lot of good feeling can come from that. You know, from feeling confident about the Dhamma, about the path we're on, about the teachings, about the practice. 
and that confidence feels good. But the way, actually, the way to deepen faith, the way to strengthen faith, the way to test faith, the way to verify faith, is to question, to doubt. And so we don't want to see that kind of doubt, that kind of questioning, that kind of investigation as necessarily the enemy of faith. Not at all. We can see it as the friend of faith. We hear the teachings, we read the teachings, and, and what comes up as a sense of uncertainty. Yes, we trust that there is an inherently stable, inherently secure reality, actuality, beyond the way things appear to be. But we don't just cling to that idea or the feelings associated with that. We're also inspired to question, to investigate, to go deeper. There's a a great, well, I think, personally, I've always, since I heard about it, a a wonderful presentation of the path of practice within the, the Chinese Buddhist tradition where they talk about the... The, uh, the three main forces of practice is great faith and great doubt. Yeah, these two, they work like a dynamo together. If you've got them balanced, yes, there's faith and confidence, but also there's doubt and investigation, and they work together and generate an intensity which takes us deeper. But then there's a third force, and it is a force also, which needs to be there, great faith, great doubt, but also patient endurance. So if we hear this teaching and we get inspired to follow this impulse to seek the beyond, to dare to risk the journey, as the, the Buddha put it, then these are the qualities that we need to be cultivating. There is the training. Others have done it before us. Yes, we have faith in this possibility, but we also need to engage the willingness to question. Don't believe, even in the apparent nature of faith. Initial arising of faith, and you can feel so sure you can get all evangelical and downright preachy about how wonderful Buddhism is, which doesn't do you or anybody else any good, really. Quite the opposite. So we want to be a little, little cautious with too much faith, and we balance it out by this doubt, this questioning and those two together as I said like a dynamo generating energy and what is it that sustains us is patient endurance because this intensity at times can feel utterly intolerable as you're coming out of the, the uh, apparent level of security which is the meanest, the uh, reasonably well-developed sense of ego that hopefully we all get equipped with by about the age of seven and then we polish uh, until we hopefully some cracks appear in this and we start to question you know this this uh, this sense of meanness we question the validity of it is it really secure is it really adequate and hopefully we start to doubt that and we investigate it Well, if we really engage the practice, that investigation can take us to a level of intensity that, as I was saying, can at times feel really, really insecure, really intolerable, unendurable. But what is it that sustains us there besides our faith? Patient endurance. 
a friend of the community recently gave us this uh, wonderful piece of calligraphy that um, a monk that that he he knows is acquainted with did for us. It's uh, it's the Chinese character for patient endurance, which some of you may know. It's uh, it's uh, the heart on the bottom, but then on the top is a knife piercing the heart, which is the Chinese character for patient endurance. And at times, that's what it can feel like. But let's not believe in the way things appear to be. If we hear these teachings and we pick up this training with sincerity, with humility, and with patience, then I think we can afford to trust that it will take us in the direction that we're seeking. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Mm-hmm.